Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, y'all. It's John Hammontree here. A lot has changed since we first started planning season two of The Reckon Interview. A lot of our lives have been turned upside down by the coronavirus pandemic. The episode you're about to hear was recorded weeks before the country went on lockdown, but I hope you'll find inspiration in stories of resilience, hope, and transformation from the South. Thanks for listening. Few people loom over Southern history more than George Wallace, the Alabama governor who became the global face of segregation in the 1960s and 70s. Wallace built a political dynasty in Alabama, and he did it largely by professing segregation. And few people realize just how close George Wallace got to moving from the Alabama governor's mansion all the way to the White House. An assassination attempt in 1972 ended his surging presidential campaign, and some say put him on a path of repentance. And today, in many ways, Alabama and America are still wrestling with that legacy of George Wallace. It affects all of us, but some of us more than others. How would you confront his legacy if he were your father, for example? That's the challenge facing his daughter, Peggy Wallace Kennedy. She, along with her siblings, are the only people in American history who were raised by two governors. Peggy's mother, Lurleen Wallace, died in office of cancer, and her death cast a long shadow over the Wallace family. Today, Peggy Kennedy is an outspoken advocate for civil rights, something she says would make her father proud. And that surprised me. And so did the rest of her personal story, laid out in her new memoir, The Broken Road. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. And if you listen to season one, welcome back. Each episode, I'm going to sit down with some of the South's most interesting minds as we try to figure out what makes this region unlike any other. And today, I'm talking with Peggy Wallace-Kennedy about how she transformed a family legacy of hate and division into a personal mission of love and reconciliation. So let's dive into The Reckon Interview. Kennedy, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you. You have a beautiful new memoir out called The Broken Road that uh, in some ways is a reflection on your father, George Wallace, but it's also about your mother, Lurleen Wallace. Yes. Uh, you're in a unique position of being the daughter of two governors of Alabama. Yes. And so I thought we might talk, we might start by talking about your mother. George Wallace's legacy is kind of cemented in history, but I feel like Lurleen Wallace kind of gets overlooked. She's seen as sort of the placeholder, the figurehead. When Wallace couldn't, when George Wallace couldn't run for re-election, uh, she ran and was elected the first female governor of Alabama. What does history get wrong about your mom? Well, I think that um, the history that people remember will be how she fought her cancer. Uh, with courage and how she died with such courage and dignity. And she died in office. She died in office. She was, uh, only served 15 months of her term. But I think that for me, she lived a, 
life of courage and dignity also. She was a wonderful mother. She was a wonderful person. She was kind, compassionate. She was genuine. There was not anything fake about my mother. Whether she was first lady or governor, she could meet someone and that they were a little anxious to meet her, she had, could put them at ease in two minutes. I learned my first lesson of compassion from my mother. Um, a woman that we knew brought her, an African-American woman that we knew, brought her daughter's son, her grandson, to our home. It was a toddler, and mother said, come, come in. The little boy was sick, and my mother said, I think he has an ear infection. This was about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. This was when we lived in Clayton. This was when I was about 7 or 8 years old. And she said, put on a pot of coffee. And my mother rocked this little boy, Tommy, all night. And I stood in the doorway and watched her. She wrapped him in a blanket real tight. And when the doctor's office op opened that morning, they went. Uh, the doctor saw him and treated him, and then mother went and bought the medicine. That was my first lesson in compassion from my mother. She was very, very compassionate person. You also depict her as being very strong. Oh, yes. She was only 16 when she married your father. It seems often let his ambition, he, wanted, he knew he wanted to be governor from the moment they were wed, he let his ambition get ahead of his family. At one point, they were living in a literal chicken coop. He also was a philanderer. And you have this, um, well, this funny story about your mom's strength when she confronted another woman. Well, that was a Cadillac. I think it was a red Cadillac, I think. It was every Wednesday that uh, in small towns back in the 50s, uh, Wednesday afternoon, everything closed but there'd be a wet red Cadillac parked in front of the courthouse. And where our house was, uh, my mother could step out into the middle of the street and, the, and see the courthouse and see cars that were parked there. So the car had been parked there too many Wednesday afternoons. So she called her best friend and they went and sat in their car and waited till the red Cadillac pulled out and started down the road, and they followed her. So somehow they pulled her over, and um, Mother went to the back of her car and got the tie iron out <laughs> and went walking back to this woman's car and began to smash the hood <laughs> to her car, the Cadillac. and. There were words exchanged. I don't know what, what they were because my mother's best friend never told me what they were. But we don't think the woman ever came back. If she did, it was not in the red Cadillac. It could have been in another car, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, think it, I don't think she ever came back. And at one point, mm -hmm. your father had run for election and lost to John Patterson, and he seemed to be kind of overcome by a fit of depression. He knew he wanted to run again, but it seemed like your mom had just had enough and she took you and your siblings, yes. and she took you to your grandparents' house, and she filed for divorce. You described feeling relieved. What was your relationship like with your father at that age? 
Well, from 58, we had a wonderful relationship and years before that. And he was a wonderful father. And then he ran for governor, and I was really proud of him. And uh, I, was very, I was very upset when he lost because I just didn't think my father could do any wrong. And I didn't think he could lose anything because that's just how I felt about my father because we were very close and loved him very much. And, but after 58, he was very devastated. Things just got really, really bad at home. My mother made the decision to take us to our grandparents. Uh, my mother drove from Clayton to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and she would drive over the Black Warrior River, and uh, she would say, now, look for the broken road. It was an abandoned roadbed, and we knew when we saw that broken road, and that was just asphalt that was heaved up and covered with kudzu vines mm -hmm. and shrub trees. And we knew that when we saw it, we were close to unconditional love and happiness and no secrets and no angry voices. And then mother would turn down that dirt road. I'd be looking for the house with the flowers on the porch. And when I saw it, I'd roll down my window and I'd wave and happiness would wave me back because we were at our grandparents' house. So we stayed there for quite a while. I did, I did go to school there. She did file for divorce. She went to Greene County. She went in and they said, on what grounds? She said, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think what happened was my mother realized that he was going to run again because he started running, I think, the day after he lost. He was so devastated. She said to herself, there's not a governor that's ever run, that's divorced, I don't think, and have their children running around wanting their daddy. She said, well, I think I'll just show him. So who held all the power? She did. Yes. So she and Mama, I remember one afternoon were just sat on the porch for a very long time, and I think that's probably what they were talking about. And I think I say in the book that Mamma said at one time, now, are you sure, Arlene, this is what you want to do, you know? And I think Mother said, yes. I think Mother, in the back of her mind, said, if I, if I do this, this is going to shoot him back into reality, you know? And uh, it did, and um, they reconciled, and we went back to Clayton. Well, and she had kind of always been the, the breadwinner and the provider for the family because he was off constantly running for election of some office or another, right? She, she had to take odd jobs and yes. things like that just yeah. to keep a yes. roof over everybody's head. That did change when he was elected governor. Obviously, yes. you got to move into the, the governor's mansion. In 1958, when he ran against Patterson, your father ran as what would have been considered a moderate at the time. Mm. Uh, the rumor that has always stuck with that election and that you address a little bit in this book is that uh, after he lost, he basically vowed he was always going to run on a platform of segregation. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, he was called the most dangerous racist in America. He is permanently associated with Alabama's civil rights history. And yet you engage his legacy in the book and you talk about... You're not sure if he ever believed his racist words in his heart, 
that he just used them as a means to get elected or may have just used them as a means to get elected. Mm -hmm. But at some point, does it matter? Does, do his, does his heart uh, matter more than his actions? Well, I believe that uh, he used segregation and racism in 1962 for power to win that election. Therefore, I don't believe that he was a racist and a segregationist in his heart. Uh, I know a lot of people will disagree with me, but I know that he would have done anything it took to win that 62 election. He didn't care. He didn't care what it mattered. It didn't care. He didn't care. And so he used uh, race and segregation to win that election. To me, that's worse, almost, than being a racist and a segregationist in your heart. A lot of people would disagree with me, but, to, but he used that. So, yes, he's labeled uh, a, a segregationist and racist governor. And he did put a number of racist people into power. Asa Carter was his speechwriter. Oh, and, yes. And Al Lingo. And it ignited a lot of yes. racist sentiment for, oh, yes. for generations. You talk about after he, after he was shot, after there was an assassination attempt on his life, you believe he had a change of heart. And a lot of people believe that. Representative John Lewis later met with him. What changed in his demeanor? Because you describe him after he was shot as not necessarily being great to be around at home, but perhaps being better on in, in political beliefs. Well, I think that after he was shot, there were so many things about my father. When he, when he could walk, he walked fast, he ate fast, he ate standing up, uh, he ate walking, he walking home from church, he'd say, hurry up, hurry up, sugar, hurry up. I'd say, wait, Daddy, wait. And then when he was shot, the irony of all that, the injury that he could never walk again was just very odd to me. That would be the injury that he would have. I think the change started then. One of the visitors he had was Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. Who was running for president at the she same time. She was running for president at the time. The first black woman to run for president. Yes. She came and prayed with him and talked with him. Now, she shut her campaign down for a, a week, and one of her workers was adamant that she not shut her campaign down and was very, very upset. She said, you're going to see a racist, a segregationist, this man. She said, listen, this is what I'm gonna do because it's the right thing to do. And it was not long after Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm left, other people came and saw him. Uh, Ethel Kennedy came in and sat and prayed with him. I could just see something in my father's eyes that, that changed. I think that while they were talking, he said, what are your people going to think? And she said, I don't care what my people think. I would not want this to happen to anyone else. And the, the worker that was so adamant and so outraged that she had come to see my father was my sister, Representative Barbara Lee from California who is one of my dearest friends now. And when 
we got together years and years ago and she told me that story. We have just, we've uh, talked about it since. But uh, later on, when uh, Congresswoman Chisholm had some bills that she won't, needed to get passed and they uh, were bills that concerned the South, she called my father and my father did whatever governors do, <laughs> I don't know. Sure. <laughs> and uh, the bills got passed. And so it was just two people that met and loved each other, may, maybe, I think. And maybe started him on the path. Yes, to... I, think, I think she did. Now, you mentioned in the book that he, after his final term in office, started trying to explain away some of his past decisions. And he tried to distance himself from uh, sending state troopers to Selma and tried to justify the stand in the schoolhouse door. How much of that is real and how much of it is revisionist? In his, in his words, he, yeah. it wasn't his yes. decision to send state troopers that just got away from him. But I just think that was my father talking and we just, we just took notes and we just wrote down everything he said. So I took it as how he wanted it to be, whether things were wrong in there or whether they were the right thing or not. That's the way uh, he wants to see it. He would call Mark and I over late, late and ask us to come over the last couple of years of his life and he just wanted to talk. And he was very regretful for his stand on race and segregation. And he talked a lot about that. And we would just let him talk. This is a quote that when he got shot that I think is very interesting because it turns out to be true. The bullets seeking to take his life possibly gave to him more than they took. My father became a different person. He became the man and the father that I knew in 58. I was glad to see him again. My father called people that he had not talked to in years and made amends with them. He did, did a lot of favors for uh, African-Americans and whites that nobody ever knows, that we'll ever know about. He just was a different person. He felt like in his journey, his own on the road to Jericho, he needed the African-American community to, to forgive him. And he went to Dexter King Church unannounced. I have his, what he said to the African-American community. And Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is course, where Dr. King yes, uh, preached yes. during his time in Montgomery. And it was in 1979. His pilgrimage to the church was a sacred one, I think, but for an attendant rolling his wheelchair to the front, he was alone. I have learned what suffering means in a way that was impossible before. I think I can understand something of the pain black people have come to endure. I know I have contributed to that pain, and I can only ask for your forgiveness. And as he was leaving the church, the congregation began to sing Amazing Grace. 
And so from segregation to reconciliation, that was my father's personal journey along his own road to Jericho. Do we still see flashes of George Wallace in modern politics? Peggy and I discuss that after the break. I think it's important, and I know this is hard, but I think it's important in order to understand his transformation, we, we do need to revisit some of those painful yes. moments yes. that he was most associated mm -hmm. with. When Vivian Malone and James Hood enrolled at the University of Alabama, your father, following up on a campaign pledge he had made, literally stood in the schoolhouse door to block them. You describe knowing in your heart at that age that what he was doing was wrong. Do you think that he knew what he was doing was wrong and did it anyway? It was a campaign promise. He ran on segregation. I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Because he ran on segregation and race. And he hadn't uh, before. And he hadn't before but to win. Right. He used it. So... Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And you describe a moment that I think a lot of Americans also experienced. Um, you were at home with your mother watching uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, a movie yes. about the Holocaust. And yes. all of a sudden, in breaks live footage just down the road in Selma, Alabama. Uh, you see your future friend, John, Will John yes. Lewis, uh, taking a police baton to the head. You shared a moment with your mother at that moment um, where, where you discussed that it was wrong. Uh, it's a moment that you later talked about with your kids. Did you ever talk about that moment with your father? No. No. Yeah. We, we, never, we never discussed any of those civil rights moments in our home. No one ever asked my opinion about anything, and no one... Um, discussed anything like that. I really had, didn't have a voice growing up like that. You, you also talk about dealing with chronic depression um, mm -hmm. for much of your life. Mm -hmm. Is it rooted, do you think, in not having, not feeling like you had a voice at home? Um, is that something that led to a feeling of isolation? Possibly. That could have been a small part of it. Sure. It could have, yes. Uh -huh. When your father realized he wasn't going to successfully be able to put, change the laws of succession so that mm -hmm. he could run again, uh, your mother decided to run. You told her you didn't want her to. Why was that? I wanted to stay at home. Yeah. But she said, this is something I want to do, and I hope you understand that. I didn't, of course, and I was very bitter about that. But I now know she had her reasons, you know, for doing it. Well, and by all accounts, she expanded access to mental health. She yes. she does not have the same legacy. Uh, she was only in office for 15 no, months yes. before she died, but she doesn't have the same legacy that your your father had. Your mother, she knew she had cancer when she ran for governor. You did not. I did not know. I did not know it. At what point did you learn it? I guess I learned it when she became ill, really ill. You know, they said she had cancer, but I had no idea that she had cancer. So had she not run, 
we would have had to move back to Clayton and and then my father would have had no job and there would have been no insurance for her, no insurance for us, possibly living on the brink of poverty again or whatever. And so she ran for us. That was difficult to learn. She was very strong and that she really wanted to to get well. And then she had several hospitals to choose from. MD Anderson was the closest to Alabama, and that's the reason she chose MD Anderson was because uh, it was closest to home. She could fly home and see us, the children. What do you remember now after she passed, Albert Brewer, the lieutenant governor, became governor and moved into the governor's mansion. And she had insisted before she died that they buy a home in Montgomery. And you and your father and your family moved into that home. What do you remember of the years immediately after her passing? Uh, Well, I went on to college, and so... Uh, they were lonely. I traveled with my father in 68, summer of 68, so I got to be with him as much as I could. While he was running for president. Yes, he was running for president. So then, and he was also running for president my freshman year of college. So I had a Secret Service man, Richard, and uh, all the girls, I went to a girls' college, all the girls loved him. <laughs> and he, it was great. Cause Probably he, the only man allowed in the dorm. <laughs> yes, and he, uh, he'd follow me on dates and everything, so, you know, that kind of <laughs> put a damper on dates. But, no, all the girls loved him. And, and then when he left, when the campaign was over and everything, we all cried. So that was kind of a, a fun thing. It was very lonely, and... Um, Prom night, you know, my mom gave me um, a pair of di- little diamond earrings, n- me not knowing that that really was the night she said goodbye. Yeah. And you now have those in your wedding band? Yes. Is that right? I do. So you can always have her with you. Your father's second wife, yes. Cornelia, was yes. from a uh, political family. Yes. How did that marriage come to be? Uh, she was gracious and warm and lively and funny. Uh, we loved her. She knew what daddy needed. She dressed him. She changed his whole wardrobe into leisure suits. because <laughs> That was what was in at the time. And of course, they'd only been married just over maybe a year when he was shot. But she took very good care of him, and it was very difficult for the whole family. Yes. And she was also trying to, to fix you up with uh, potential suitors, is that right? Yeah, she, yeah <laughs> she did. And I just, you know, I said, I, I, you know. But you found Mark on your own. Yes, I found Mark on my own, thank <laughs> goodness. And she just gave me this beautiful wedding. It was just wonderful. We just, it was just wonderful. And her mother, Ruby, uh, we put Cornelia and Ruby in the acknowledgments because... I think I told one story in the book about Christmas dinner. The theme was orange. Everything was orange. Duck a la orange. The sweet potatoes were in orange rinds, and orange blossoms were... I don't know where they got the orange blossoms in December, <laughs> but they did, and they rolled Daddy to the table, and he looks, and he says, What's all this? And she said, George... The theme is orange. Everything's orange. So there's a little buzzer under the table where he can, he can buzz and into the kitchen. So he buzz, he's just buzzing and buzzing away. <laughs> and so his uh, personal bodyguard comes to the door and he said, 
y'all go out now and try to get me a barbecue. <laughs> and <laughs> so Cornelia, of course, she f uh, flees from the table in her drama, <laughs> you know, and all her drama. And we're all going, yeah, can you pick us up a barbecue too? <laughs> <laughs> and, but it was a beautiful table, and we have a lot of great stories like that that, you know, <laughs> we couldn't put them all in there. But Ruby was a character, and, and, and Ganee was a great stepmother. She really was. Well, and you talked about from the moment your father stood in the schoolhouse door kind of having a lingering anxiety that, that he could be shot, that an assassination yeah. attempt could happen. Do you remember where you were when you learned he had been shot? Yes, I was uh, attending um, what was then Troy State University, which is now, of course, Troy University, a wonderful university here in Alabama, and waiting for a class. I'd gone into the classroom, and, and I sat down, and I remember looking up at the clock. It just so happens that at the time I looked up at the clock is the exact time he was shot. I find that very interesting. Yeah. But I got yeah. up and went outside the classroom next to the window just to wait for uh, some friends. And one of my friends came up and she said, well, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm here for class. And she said, well, you haven't heard. I said, no, because she thought really maybe that I'd heard that he'd been shot in the arm or something. And she said, oh, you don't know. I said, no, what? She said, your father's been shot. I think that uh, after I got over the initial shock, uh, relief was what I felt. That he was alive? No, that that that, that day had come. Oh, I see. And I know, I, I don't know how to explain it. I know it sounds bad, but that day had come. It was over. I didn't have to get up every day and wonder if this was the day. Yeah. I didn't know if he was dead or alive, but now I didn't have to get up. And when we got from Troy to Montgomery and I found out that he was alive, I was just, I was so happy I didn't know what to do. That's what I felt. I just felt the relief. Yeah. I didn't have to wake up. Not having to wait. No. I'd have to wake up another day. Wow. You've made a career, in, at least since 2009, of speaking out about civil rights. Do you think that that's something that is a burden on you because of who your father was? I wanted to leave a legacy for my sons, different from the legacy that was left for me. So I guess, in a way, that it would be the opposite Mm -hmm. of what was left for me. I've never thought about it. But I knew that I was passionate about peace and reconciliation. And so when I crossed that bridge with John Lewis in 2009 and... The Edmund Pettus Bridge. Where, yes, yeah. Edmund Pettus, the only bridge. The only bridge. I, I always say it's the only bridge. He, he just held my hand and I never met John before. And he just uh, was so kind and he just showed me that reconciliation and forgiveness can restore the soul and heal a human heart. He, he just gave me the courage to find my own voice, and I never had one. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, you know? And he took me over to the side of the rail, and we were marching, and 
looking over in the water, and he said, well, sister, we need to move on now. And I thought, now's the time for me to, to speak up. I want to leave a legacy for my two sons, and I'm going to start building today, and it's going to be on peace and reconciliation. He gave me the courage to do that. He is one of these people that makes you believe in yourself, tells you that you can do anything you want to do. She's like a parent, you know. You can do anything you want to do. He calls me sister, and <laughs> I call him brother. And we grew up 38 miles from each other. But in reality, we were oceans apart. <laughs> and years later, I wrote John a letter, and I said, I've crossed many bridges in my life, and I've crossed many more. The most important bridge I would will have ever crossed in my life will be the one I crossed with you. Beautiful. Today, there are a lot of people who compare our modern political climate to 1960s on race and in, and in the things that our politicians say. I believe that in 2016, you wrote an opinion piece saying that Trump rallies reminded you of your father's rallies. Uh, what do you see from today's politicians that remind you of, of your father at his lowest points? Well, in 68, 1968, my father's rallies were, were pretty violent because you had a lot of African-Americans who were protesters. And so you had a lot of violence. But violence from the protesters? From or the protesters. From the African-American protesters? Yes, okay. and they, they would come and, and protest. So there's, there was much more violence in 1968 than there was in 2016. But, you, but what I saw was the charisma of the two candidates and the way they could draw a crowd. They both realized that the two biggest motivators for voters was hate and fear. Mm -hmm. Their slogans were coded. Stand up for America. Which was your father's slogan. Mm -hmm. Stand up for white Southerners. Mm -hmm. Make America great again. Keep the Hispanics, the Mexicans, the drugs, the rapists out. Mm -hmm. So they're co they were coded. That's what most, most of what I was talking about. A number of books have been written about your father. What was new for you uh, when you were researching this book? What did you learn about your father, and what was the hardest thing you learned? Mark and I researched my father's parents, uh, and then we went down to Pea River, Alabama, where all of his relatives were buried. His father was uh, an alcoholic that died at the age of 40. His mother, very stoic, and I learned about his father making those boys fight. Making George and his brothers yes. mm -hmm. box. Mm -hmm. yes. But there were a lot, of, a lot of parts of the book that were hard to relive. Ne never written a book before. So a lot of parts were hard to relive and took some time to write it and then take it two or three days off because you just had to kind of recuperate. It's a story that's never been told because it's the truth, the way that I lived it with my father the tr and truth the way that I saw my father. And I'm hoping that the love that my father and I had for each other is a thread throughout the book, I hope. People can see that because we loved each other very much. It was complicated, painful at times, 
but we loved each other very much. Well, and the book seems to have resonated with people. You just got word this morning that um, it's going to its second printing. Yes. So congratulations. Very happy. Thank you. Um, I have one last question to kind of talk about as we close. You have spoken with other daughters of the movement, um, Dr. King's daughter, John F. Kennedy's daughter, Lyndon Johnson's daughter. What is it that unites each of you as you carry on the legacies of your fathers? Where have you found common ground and where have you found um, disagreement? I think the common ground we have is the love we have for our fathers. I think that's it (laughs) because uh, I've I've talked to each one of them and um, it's the love we have for our fathers and we all understand our fathers stand and their personalities and their way of doing things and governing, that kind of thing. It's the love that we have for our fathers. And what would you hope that people take away from from this book? Well, I hope that people understand that they can all overcome their past. Not to forget their past, but they can overcome their past. But to always remember that it's not who you are, it's who you can become. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank thank you. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you to Peggy Wallace-Kennedy for welcoming us into her home and for the thoughtful conversation. You can find her book, The Broken Road, at your favorite local bookstore. Guys, we've got a wonderful season lined up for you all, so go ahead and subscribe to The Reckon Interview wherever you get your podcasts, and please share the show with your friends. And hey, if the spirit moves you to leave us a five-star review, that'll just better help us spread these great stories from the South. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was recorded and produced by Amy Yerkinen, and it was edited by Steph Colburn's awesome team at Edit Audio. Please shoot me an email or a tweet at at John Hammontree with any suggestions for guests. And if you like Reckon, follow us everywhere on social media and sign up for our newsletter. And until next week, keep on Reckoning.